0: There are many of us across the world today who are in despair, who are angry, who are in mourning, whose lives are touched and torn by the tragedies wrought by human depravity and cruelty. Some might say this is not the time to contemplate the place of compassion and yes, even joy in the world, which are among the subjects of this episode. I have to say, given the weight of these terrible times, It will be hard to find a place for that, but I think if we're to ever change the tyranny of this dangerous story, that place must be made. From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. This episode's guest is a longtime friend and colleague who I met during what I refer to as my Canada days. Actually... My Canada Hippie Days. Barry describes his life path as having two principal streams. One is a serious devotion to Buddhist practice and teaching, and the other is as a painter of a wide range of subjects, from abstract geometrics to Buddhas to women weightlifters. If you're a regular listener, you're probably aware that in my view of the history and prehistory of Homo sapiens sapiens, art-making and spiritual practice emerged from the same evolutionary seeds, seeds that were eventually spread on the wings of human story-making. In the beginning, there was a word, the word, a word, I don't know, but that word Doing its best to stay afloat at the confluence of time and space, spinning at the hot center of the mind's eye vortex had no choice but to go forth and multiply and begin a story. Now this making thing that it seems we've always done that we call art? These are the tools we use to nudge our stories out into the world, but it's important to remember the artist's hand made that bison on the wall that became the words that begat the first story that gave birth to the first explanation, the first joke, the first rumor, the first vexing, no-easy-answer question. That audio excerpt came from our short film, Story Story, and could be applied to many of our guests whose contemporary practice continues the work of making and spreading change-provoking stories across the world, stories that we take enormous pride in sharing on this show. Given this, I thought it would be interesting to talk to someone like Barry, whose life of service encompasses an intensely deep commitment to both spiritual and creative paths. As I mentioned, Barry and I go way back to the time we spent together in the 1970s on an arts and healing-focused commune called Buckhorn Center that we helped establish some hundred miles north of Toronto, Canada. We started off with a short reminiscence of that time as it relates to the roots of Barry's creative endeavors. Part 1. Six Buddhas. I did
1: want to tell one story that relates oh, to yeah. that how did I end up starting to be an artist? Yeah. I was living with you and all those other folks on at the farm in Buckhorn. This is a communal farm for those of you who don't know. And the main thing that was going on other than this being a bunch of weird hippies is freaking out, was there was a band <laughs> and music going on, right? And I, I can't carry a tune in the bucket, let's be real honest. And I didn't have any musical talent at all. So, but I'm like, oh, wait, I'm with all these cool people. I have to have some sort of artistic output, right? So I started painting things on the walls, if you remember. Yes, I do. I had to, I was going to be an artist. And that's <laughs> how it started. Just that was the impulse. The original impulse was I, I got to be cool like these other people, <laughs> only they're musicians. I can't be a musician, so I have to be an artist instead. Uh, that's marvelous. And that's how it all started but way 50 odd years ago.
0: (laughs) Back in the day when it was, who do you want to be today?
1: Yeah, I'll be an artist. And (laughs) and I had no training, no formal, nothing, nothing. I just like, oh, I like geometry. So I started doing geometric things on the walls of the the farm. I remember that, I remember that. Absolutely. But that was like just, that was the impetus. It was like, oh, I
0: gotta do something. Yeah, so that was where the arts bug got you. What was the spark that launched you on your spiritual path?
1: I've always been, since I was a teenager, interested in, I suppose you'd say, spiritual pursuits. Trying to understand the world in ways other than the concrete. And in high school, I tried to start a a group where I would would invite different people, like a, a Buddhist monk and a a Jewish rabbi and have them come in and explain their faith to us. And the school wouldn't let me. can't do that in high school. That'd be, that was way too shocking. And then through university, I explored a few things in my 20s. I explored various yoga traditions and then became very involved in a yoga school for a long time with a someone named Swami Vishnu Devananda. He passed away in 93. I was like, oh, now what do I do? And then someone told me about this book. Uh, called The Experience of Insight by Joseph Goldstein. Joseph is like the grandfather of the Buddhist mindfulness movement in the West. And I read this book and went, ah, this is what I've been looking for. I went off right away, I found out where he was teaching and went and sat a 10 day retreat with him. And so that's 20 years ago. And since then I've practiced, spent a lot of time, it's been about a year in silent retreat.
0: That is an intense commitment. Uh, certainly above and beyond going to church or shul once a week. And then you turn to teaching as well, right? And so I
1: started teaching Dhamma about 10 years or so ago. And for me, the reason I teach it is it just has changed how I see the world and how I interact with the world, I think somewhat dramatically, though maybe not, maybe just resonates with me so much that I get it in a certain way. But it's such a powerful set of teachings and the buddha taught for 40 years so it's like a huge collection of teaching that i also spend time so i study and i teach and i still go on retreat myself i just go for a week or three weeks or a month or whatever I, I can fit together with other things which sort of got messed up by the pandemic for a while there we couldn't do that sort of stuff and i teach simply because i think this is on a individual basis because i think that's the only way i can be effective in changing the world mm. is to reach people and, and so sometimes there'll be 40 people in the room and sometimes i'm teaching someone one-on-one but i'm just trying to give them an understanding of what the buddha taught because i think it changes how they are in the world and in a positive way in a wholesome way mm-hmm. so that's the other stream there's other little bits it's like I'm, I'm married i've got two kids all those sorts of things. I have a big garden. I work one morning a week as a chaplain at the local hospital, as a volunteer chaplain. So there's other little bits, but those two, the art and the Buddhist teachings are the two streams that are where my main focus in life is and how I reach out into the world and try and affect change in the world. Interestingly, you were talking about how you started doing this project during the pandemic. During the pandemic, I painted six Buddhas one after another because that's what I needed to do. That's how I could deal with it. Yeah. Like, like, okay, how can I deal with what's going on? Oh, I have all these images of Buddhas. I'm just going to sit here and paint Buddhas. And mm. that's what I did. And it was great. Yeah. It's just what I needed to do at the time. And that's actually, I finished that series and started painting women wake dress, which is, oh, I think I need to do something different. <laughs> you know, it was
0: like, oh, let's switch, let's,
1: let's switch streams completely here.
0: You anticipated a question I was gonna ask, and it was, where do you see, in the Venn diagram of your life, the painting practice and the spiritual practice overlapping, informing each other, connecting?
1: Oh, very much, other than just painting Buddhas, I paint in very high detail, with very small brushes. And so the actual process of applying paint is very slow and very concentrated and very meticulous. So it's essentially meditative. Not in the, the traditional sense of that, but certainly for me, the actual process of painting, especially when I get to the painting part, the drawing part somewhat, but more the painting part. It's very, still and quiet. It's just me and scritch, scritch, scritch and the brush on the canvas and that's about it. And so I see the two fitting together quite nicely.
0: And of course uh, neuroscientists have come along um, and said, oh yeah, what you're doing is, is what we see in, in MRI images when people meditate. And it might be music, it might be some kind of movement and, and particularly just a high concentration of what they call flow. And there you go. And particularly these days, to be able to avail yourself of that consciously with intention is a great gift.
1: Oh, yeah. I often think how lucky I am to have the life I have. Astoundingly lucky. There was I alluded earlier on about there was a period when I painted in my 20s. Then all of a sudden I had two kids and a mortgage and I didn't paint for 20 years. But in that time, I was relatively speaking successful as a businessman, and I don't have to work at a regular job anymore. I can I, I, I sell my paintings in the Buddhist con- community in which I'm part of. We work on what's called dana, so I teach with no price. No, I never charge anything, and people give if whatever they can afford it, or they, if they can't afford anything, they don't give anything, and that's all okay. And that's my income, in a sense. And that plus what I put away, what, what a life. How really? lucky can you get?
0: Part two. Don't believe anything I say. You You've written a bit, and one of the articles you wrote really resonated with me because, first of all, because as I'm sure you're aware, every spiritual practice has an insider game and an outsider game and an insider language and an outsider language. And everything I've read that you've written is the opposite of that. It's very welcoming, invitational, and friendly, and more than anything, humble. Consistently saying, I didn't know. I was trying to figure this out. I think that's exactly the way that people who have something valuable to share. Here's something i found. Maybe you might find it too. That kind of thing.
1: Just by the way, it's what the Buddha said over and over again.
0: And one of the articles I'm going to reference here is Cultivating Joy. And the reason it resonated with me is that if I have a religion, it's the religion of story. Little stories that, that moms tell their kids and big stories that we tell ourselves that we don't even realize are stories and powerful stories that can, in many ways, determine the path of our lives. And your article about cultivating joy, for me, when I read it, said, if you're going to cultivate joy, it's not just going to drop on your head. That cultivation is an intention. And that the work, in essence, is understanding the stories that are in there and finding the connection between you and the joy that's around you that joy doesn't come out of you it comes from the world around you that it's no yeah. it's not about you and i just really appreciated it you know
1: i spend a lot of time reading stories mm-hmm. in that because this is the the pali canon the teachings of the buddha which he taught for 40 years so it's a huge collection a lot of it are just stories. Like, here, the Buddha was here, and this guy came and visited, and this is what they said. So it's a story. Mm-hmm. It's all, most of this probably canon is just stories. Mm-hmm. So I spent a lot of time in storyland in that sense, but in a very intentional way. But you're, the thing you're talking about is in the Buddhist tradition is called mudita. Mm-hmm. Mudita roughly translates as sympathetic joy you experience when you see joy around you. And that and the beauty of that, and I teach about this a lot, actually, in what I'm actually formally teaching, is that it's free. Yes. You, don't, you don't have to buy anything. You don't have to be any certain way. You just need to be open. Open your heart, mind, and take in what's all around you and see it and then not be reactive to it. Like not you see someone walking their dog, right? And your mind can go, oh look, that dog looks really happy, and the person looks really happy. Or your mind can go, that guy better pick up the poop, and, and that's just your choice in your mind, which way you yep. go, right? Yep. And but I take it in as joy, as I'm experiencing just walking down the street, and this guy's walked by with a dog. Or I can take it in as, I got those people with those dogs, and never ever pick Bob up and get caught spinning in one of those stories about how mm-hmm. bad people with dogs are. It's just a choice. Yeah, and that's and the choice is what what in Buddhist teachings are called cultivation. Cultivation implies you have to do something. Mm -hmm. You have to consciously choose to more and more often the situation, see the joy in the situation. Yeah, and I mentioned I'm a a chaplain at the hospital, and I spend a lot of time really in the cancer ward, where and you think not going to be any joy there, right? Man. It's like you meet people and they tell you their stories, talk about stories. You get, you get to hear great stories hanging out as a chaplain because they just people want to talk. And there's this, they just burst with joy sometimes in the midst of the fact that they may not be around for very long, but they still have stories to tell them and they want to share them. And there's joy there just in the telling and having someone just sit and listen. That's my role as a chaplain, really. Uh, people say, well, what do you, what's your job? I go in there, chat a bit, and then I listen. Because a lot of times people want to tell those stories, but their family won't listen to them anymore because they've told those stories to the family 50 (laughs) times. And they say, oh, oh, grandpa, don't tell. Not that stupid story again. But this guy just comes and sits down and really pays attention and tunes into what they're saying. And the joy just comes out. And I thought, what a great place to hang out in and find joy.
0: And isn't that a cycle so that... The story itself generates joy inside your heart. Yeah, you're joyful. Your attention and and respect reciprocates. Yeah. Absolutely. And it just—it's yeah. a synergy. Yeah. Right there.
1: Yeah, they feel it. They feel. Oh, this person really cares. This person yeah. really wants to just sit and listen to my story. Yes. And yeah, and that's very true choice. It's a. It, it is a, complimentary thing. So. I, I just tell you one other story about teaching joy because it seems applicable. Uh, a couple of students of mine asked me a couple of years ago now to marry them in Colorado. Basically, you don't need to have any license; you can just marry people. It's Colorado's got these all these weird frontier laws, so basically they just went and got this piece of paper from the clerk and. They signed it and they were married. So they didn't need any officiant, officially, but they wanted me to do this because. And what did I talk about? I talked about, there we are in this the family setting. It's a small group. And what I talk about, because they said they wanted a Buddhist wedding. I had to make something up, right? So I said, th- and I talked about Mutita. I talked, about, look, just look what's going on here right now. Here's these two people who clearly are totally gaga for each other. It was palpable. And all the family was around and they were taking it in and they all looked really happy. And I felt really happy just being there. And see what's going on here. This is the gift these two people are giving us. They're giving us Mm -hmm. access to their joy and we can all feel it and it comes back to them. And it just, it's such a powerful thing. And this is just, this is what weddings are about. Mm -hmm. As far as I was concerned, this is an important part of being a wedding. It's like time for joy and it's, the people who are getting married are giving opportunity for joy to everyone else. It's just Maybe a different way of looking at weddings, but you know, it seems to be applicable to my mind.
0: I actually have to say that most weddings I've been to, it, it's a setup for joy. And some of them, they <laughs> translate joy as some kind of bacchanal. But, but that whole, and, and I actually think that's what the whatever benediction whatever blessing that is given to uh, two people who are going off on a journey together that's what they're really there for is to be to acknowledge and celebrate their love and be blessed by the people who love them and somebody like yourself who's tied up in a way and as you well know your wedding day is probably the easiest day to be cultivating joy Uh, but that message a year later two years later five years later is right at the center of being able to maintain those relationships
1: absolutely absolutely Absolutely.
0: yeah so uh, the thing you're reminding me of is another part of i guess you could say my practice is this idea of, of cultivating what some people describe as the creative process and not some technique but in fact, an intrinsic aspect of what it is to be human may be one of the most powerful aspects of what it is to be human is the imagination and the creative process and what you do in in one half of your life, which is to manifest the products of your your imagination, your observation, your sense of of beauty in the world. And when you describe joy here, and then there's another practice, metta, which you've Mm. written about, the practice of loving kindness, which it seems to me is joined at the hip with the joy practice, are both synergistic, powerful ways of being in the world that take work but actually manifest an extraordinary return and which is a creative process. And I'll just one other thing to say is that scientists have been struggling for a long time to try and create the perpetual motion machine in terms of energy, cold fusion or whatever you want to call it, that basically creates more energy than you put in. And I've always felt that the creative process is, as you say, free and available, and it does that on a regular basis.
1: But you have to put energy into it. Yes,
0: absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah.
1: It's interesting that you would mention the, the meta- so I want to be a little precise here. I'm what's called the Theravada Buddhist. So uh-huh. Theravada, basically, people ask me, what, is, what's, what does that mean? And Theravadans are like the Quakers of the Buddhist world. Here's what the Buddha said. Let's just see if we can live it out. Really simple, really plain. The focus of practice is always on silence and stillness. Much if you ever been to a Quaker meeting, you go to a Quaker meeting and people are sitting there, and someone stands up and he says something, and then that person sits down, and they might be silent for the next ten minutes, and so so this just cultivates this energy of silence and stillness. And metta, which is tr- typically translated as loving kindness, to, to differentiate it from loving, so it's just like kindness, having an open heart. Another translation of metta is goodwill. And the the beauty of metta and, and mudita is there two of what are called the four Brahma Viharas, the noble abodes, the uh, wholesome mind states that the Buddha continually encouraged us to cultivate. And he's always starting with metta, because if you can have a heart full of loving kindness, mm-hmm. then naturally, if you encounter joy in the world, you feel joy. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, also, if you encounter suffering in the world, Naturally, you feel compassion. Metta is the thing that creates the space for those other two to arise, and then on the other fourth one of those is, is equanimity, which means we got to keep our balance. If you thing with all of these cultivations is like everything else, like every other practice, you can go off the rails, so to speak. Yeah. And you, you, for instance, with with metta, with loving kindness, you can get caught in the space of well, I'll be loving kind towards you, but I expect you to be loving kindness towards me, which is not meta anymore. Now it's yep. just desire, just yes. wanting something. And so equanimity is the one is the thing that brings balance to the other three. And they all are very synergistic. And I think of them sometimes my old mathy brain is a tetrahedron. Like there's four a four-sided object. They're all related to each other and they interact with each other in various ways. But they're all practices and that's what the, uh, i'm going back to my buddhist thought here but it's, that's what i like about the buddhist teachings the buddha doesn't say just do this and everything will be okay he says practice this and see what happens yes and this is what i this is what i teach this is all i'm ever trying to do is get people to say this is what i've experienced but who knows what you're going to experience go practice and see what happens just try it out and that is this famous teaching of the buddha called the kalama sutta The Kalamas is a village in India, and he showed up, and the Kalamas were all going, oh, all these different teachers come and say one thing, and then another teacher says another thing. We don't know who to believe. And he lists all these things you shouldn't believe. Here's good reasons not to believe something. Just because it's said so in the scriptures, don't believe that. Just because someone looking really wise thinks they know what they're doing. And then the last thing he said was, and don't believe anything I say. Don't believe me. Go practice and find out for yourself. that If I can teach that, if I can get that across, I've been successful. That's what and, I'm trying to do all the time, just get that across. And it's the so, thing is, it's so counter to our whole culture, which is basically, you know, just buy this and get this and do, go to this and everything will be okay. No, sorry, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, the,
0: the image that came into my mind was merit badges. Which you're familiar with because you're an eagle. I scout. Was a boy scout. <laughs> and I but you know the merit badge as somehow emblematic of the fact that you know something or you are something when in fact it's bestowed upon you as a result of having done certain things. And it what you just described really also reminds me, not of all artistic practice, but particularly the artistic practice of people that I interact with, which is many of them are in the, are in the business of sharing a practice with other people who are drawn to it and who are interested in it. And mm-hmm. at the core of that teaching is not... Here's the exact way to do this, and I'm going to look over your shoulder and make sure that you get this line right or, the, or these colors right. I'm going to share some, some ideas and some principles and things, but you have to get in there with it yourself, and you're yeah. going to go someplace I have never been. Yeah. And that's the gift, which is it's not somebody else's dime. It's not somebody else's idea. It is something that lives in you. And that you now have the ability to manifest, you know, if you put in the time.
1: Here's an interesting thought. When it comes to art, the actual the process of painting and all that sort of stuff, people have asked me, would, would you teach that? And I, my answer's always been, I haven't got a clue how to possibly do that. <laughs> and I probably hate it. Yes. It's like, it's so personal for me yeah. to yeah. just, I go to that quiet space and I work. And I can teach people like, here's how you make a stretcher, and here's how you stretch a canvas, and here's how I make my frames. I can so the technical, crafty stuff, I'd be happy to teach people that. But when it comes down to, okay, now you got this blank canvas, what are you gonna do? You're on your own, but don't <laughs> ask me because I don't know. But it's, also it's,
0: it's, think about this. The work itself hanging in someone's place in an exhibition or whatever is a It's a book. It's a story that everybody gets to have their own individual relationship with, separate from yours.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And when you get your paintings out there in the world, in a show or in someone's house or whatever, I know some people who have my paintings and I've gone to visit them and I haven't seen this painting in two or three years, and there it is on their walls. Oh, it's sweet to see that it's become part of their life and has nothing to do with my life other than I did it back then. And it's, yeah, that that energy I put into that painting, because there's certainly an energetic process to create the painting that I think comes out of the painting into the world.
0: That I feel. And, of course, we live in the commodified world that often only sees it as a frame and a canvas and some kind of price tag that's on it in a a gallery with a red dot or whatever. But, I mean, anybody's house that you go to and you see what they have... Yep. adorned their space with mm-hmm. and inevitably you can say so what about that what's up with Where did that, that come? and yeah. there is a there's a there's a, often a series of stories um that that are part history and part everyday relationship with this thing that they live with it's yeah. a pretty amazing thing <laughs> part 3 trust so Barry... As you know, every society at one time or another gets focused on the navel of their own moment in history. But today, it seems like we are in a particular moment in need of some common sense wisdom. I think the two virtues we just talked about, cultivating joy and loving kindness, like you said, these are not easy things to manifest, but not to be flip. If we could get those down, it would be transformative What are your thoughts about what we humans will need to do to survive and thrive beyond our lifetimes?
1: That's a tough one. Yeah. I don't want to proselytize here or anything like that.
0: Yeah. But I think
1: what the Buddha kept saying over and over and over and over again was basically, number one, you got to figure this out for yourself. And number two, there's a lot of joy out there in the world, but you need to put in the work to connect with it. And there's also he very things that, and there's a lot of suffering in the world. If you just look around you, I read the New York Times every day. I shouldn't do it, but it's I, yeah, like, oh my god! Now this happened. You know, I just see often what I'll see is I see the suffering, and I think, what can I do to help fix that in some small way, perhaps? Now I'm going to shock you, Piero, perhaps. I spent a long time basically ranting about uh, a former president of ours, shall we say. But at the same time, all during that time, and right now to today, I look at him and it just tears my heart because this man is so deeply lost in suffering. Mm -hmm. How could he possibly be acting and speaking in this way if he wasn't really just totally insecure and full of suffering all the time? And so I have to somehow look at the world and, and see both of those things at the same time. God forbid, I would never want it to be, to be president again,
0: but I have to balance those two. Yeah, and one of my little lessons that I've always told myself is that you can come in my house and steal something, I will feel violated, and I will be angry. Then I have a choice. Do I let you stay here with me and turn my heart sour? I can be more vigilant, I can lock my doors, but am am I going to actually have you steal from me again, yeah. which steals my capacity to to have compassion, my capacity to have joy in the world, my capacity to feed the people around me i've felt the same way with the political situation, which is the real danger there is is the yeah. terminal toxic heart which basically transcends the headline it just stays with you and you can just yeah. turn that on the guy that doesn't pick up his poop and you've put po- you've poisoned the world around you and that previous president is nowhere to be fin- he's not in the park next door to my house but that's one of the great lessons i think of this moment is where do you want to be and where do you want to go with your heart be active with that with where mm-hmm. your heart is don't just let it get yeah. stolen. Absolutely, yeah. it's like You have
1: to protect yourself without building a hell-hard shell around you. With, yeah. And that's another one of those balance things.
0: A question about you and your painting. Obviously, there's this moment of intense concentration. You collect images, and then you decide what you want to paint. But as you have said, there is an exchange of energy between you and your subject, and you and the canvas which is just at least in my mind it's a powerful manifestation of what it is to be human is to make something that didn't exist before mm-hmm. that that celebrates that also blesses a thing that somebody else may take for granted or not even see does that ring true?
1: Yeah now, I, I might have used different words but that's a lot of what I'm doing it's just if you ask me how I choose over the years what to paint, because I've been through a lot of different cycles of painting purely abstract geometric pieces 20 years ago, to painting surreal temple images that came out of my head, to doing a lot of architectural pieces, and all these different things. And how did I go from one to the next? I don't know. How can I go from painting Buddhists to painting women weightlifters. But it was like, I was just <laughs> sitting around going, what am I gonna do now? Literally, I just literally, what am I gonna paint now? And I'm, interestingly, I there's a huge oil refinery in Denver. And I, I had this whole idea, getting into the oil refinery and taking photos, yeah, but absolutely. they wouldn't let me in. They had yeah. all these rules, so now what do I do? And then this whole, this idea of painting women weightlifters just sort of popped into my brain, who knows? I really have no idea what the impetus of that was at all. But as soon as it was there, I went off and refined it and started looking, talking to people. And Uh, here I am nine months later.
0: You're just mapping the infinite capacity of the human imagination.
1: And the creative process. Exactly. Oh, what a surprise that I here. I'm here and it seems to be working, so let's keep doing that. The other
0: interesting thing is that these are human beings at a pretty intense moment in their day. And so I would imagine just the process of negotiating and navigating those relationships must be really fascinating.
1: It's been fascinating. And to be honest with you, at times, quite difficult. Basically, when I find someone who says, yeah, I I don't really like what you're doing, and I'll go in. And what I I always tell them is, you just do your workout like you normally would and ignore the fact that I'm here with this camera going clicker. But that's a pretty intense thing, because they're they're doing their thing, and I'm just standing there with my camera taking pictures. I always tell them, please don't pose. I just want you to be doing what you would normally do, and hopefully I'll capture something that resonates, that turns into a painting. So the photos are like the very beginning of a multi-step process. At the same time, I've had a hard time finding people. I can't tell you the number of times I've had someone who has said to me, said, oh, what a great idea. I really like the idea behind this. I think representing women in this way is really, I think, important. And then I, I go, oh, that's great. And they they just disappear.
0: Actually, I think there's a through line here through, through our whole conversation, it seems to me. And that is that the one of the great struggles of modern society is is trust. And we live, I think, in a period of human history where whatever it took... For the guy who shooed the horses and, and the guy with the horse to forge some kind of trusting relationship, whatever it took back then, it takes 10 times more right now. We have pseudo-trust all over the place, but the whole idea of being vulnerable in the face yeah. of, of all of the questions about nobody is who you think they are and when things you think are X, turn out Y... And I think about that, that there are those people who did agree and you have done your work. And there are those people when you're a chaplain who are at their most vulnerable and they are trusting you again, not just with their story, but with their existential soul, in a sense. Mm. And in many ways, all the relational work that I know that involves creativity and empathy and compassion is really, at its core, it's about how do you generate trust in a world that has, in many ways, removed a a whole landscape that was naturally set up for people to learn how to trust each other through through Mm -hmm. hanging out and practicing. You showed up and helped me with my barn. Great. I think you're doing one of the most basic and important things that we really need now, big time. And you're probably not going to be best friends with all of your subjects. But just having someone value your image and making yourself vulnerable and allowing that to occur in the hospital, in the weight room, whatever. That's a—that's an important thing, I think. Hard work, yeah. too.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's, I, I teach longer retreats. Where I'll go in the fall or 22 people for six days. And I'm just... I'm teaching all the time. It's a totally relational human relations process teaching in that sense. Like people are really vulnerable because the practice itself takes them into places where they didn't even know where they are. And then these things come up and they want to talk about them. It's like you're really in the front lines of their lives
0: mm-hmm.
1: for those at that time. Yeah, And it's powerful. And I love doing it. And it's really powerful, but it's hard what often I think is like people think somehow these things are going to be magic. Oh, I'll just start to meditate a bit and everything will be okay. Mm -hmm. Actually, you start meditating a bit, your mind goes a little bit still and all the junk you've been avoiding comes up into your mind and you have to deal (laughs) with all your shit. Right. (laughs) Oops. Sorry about that. This is what you've got. Yeah. And that's all in this part of the practice.
0: Part four toes in the water. So people are going to be listening to this people get excited or interested or curious to put their toe in the water as you say are there other things that people can read or study that can help
1: the amount of resources out there is mind-boggling yeah for instance all of the principal teachings of the buddha are now online free just go but you have to of you read the sutta and if you Remember, you're talking about the inner language and the outer language. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the inner language, you'll read the suit and go, what the hell is this all about? Yes. Because it's written in a certain style and a certain way of speaking. And yeah. but, but there are lots of online teaching and group teaching and retreats going on all the time. The two main places I spent time practicing was called the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts, and Spirit Rock in California, which are like major... Buddhist retreat centers in North America right now that have programs anywhere from a day to three months. So it depends on that. And you wouldn't go to three months first. You start with a day. <laughs> and and they now, because of what's gone on with the pandemic, there's a huge amount of online resources, online meetings.
0: So here's a question that just popped up from, is there a bridge or a reference inside the, the teaching that engages the idea of creative process or imagination in buddhist practice
1: certainly teachings on on joy i'd say do that Mm -hmm. not directly but creative process is all about joy as far as i'm concerned Mm -hmm. why create things and be miserable at the same time it seems antithetical right yeah there's certainly teachings on spontaneity Mm -hmm. and what it really means to be spontaneous And there's teachings on that uh, within the Buddhist canon. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, particularly in the the Theravada world that I'm most deeply connected with, there's not a lot going on about art because it's it's, most of the practice is very personal and silent and interior. Mm. Now, but I'm speaking of this particular form of Buddhist practice. If you go into, say, Tibetan Buddhist teachings, there's a huge Tibetan organization here in Boulder and you go into their temple and it's like oh, an explosion of color and thangkas and bodhisattvas and it's just absolutely gorgeous. But for me, way too distracting. But for other people, it's that that, that energy of the color and the images as them to how they want to practice. Mm-hmm. And in different traditions of Buddhism, there'd be a lot more art going on than in the particular tradition I practice.
0: How about in your teaching? Are there places where the art, the creative process, shows up?
1: I'm fascinated by poetry. Because I think poetry can sometimes express things much more clearly than I can going blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And almost every time I teach, I'll read a poem. Mary Oliver, Dana Falls, people of that sort of ilk. And these are Western poets. And I'm using them to teach Dhamma.
0: Here is...
2: Calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things.
1: And I think Mary Oliver was just like a lot of what she wrote, was just a pure Dhamma teaching Mm -hmm. in its own way. The fact that she was a Christian is beside the point, but it's like how she expresses things and the, the way she explains things in her poetry just resonates so deeply with Buddhist teachings. And so I can use that Western imagery and Western words and Western form as part of teaching Buddha Dhamma.
0: That's so good to hear. Mary Oliver is definitely one of my favorites. And as you said earlier, there are many doors out there. And I think this relates to the questions around getting your toe in the water as well. Are there... Other resources for the curious that you would recommend? Sure.
1: Two books in particular. One is called Insight Meditation. I just looked at my bookcase to make sure I had the title correct. Insight Meditation by Joseph Goldstein, Uh which is your basic teachings on the practice and why you practice and how it works. Gorgeous book, but written from a Western point of view. And then the other one is Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness. Basically, in this Buddhist world I live in, there's these two forms of practice. One is called insight meditation, which is very mental and focused and just observing what's arising. And then there's loving kindness practice, which is much more this idea of cultivating by repeating phrases and using images, giving the mind and that sort of. So they're two very different forms. There's two different doors into the same space, mm-hmm. like all spiritual practice, I think, to yeah. a certain extent. And so those in Buddhist teaching, there's something called chitta. Chitta means heart-mind. In the West, we think there's heart right. and mind. Yes. But in Buddhism, it's like heart-mind. It's, it's one place. And metta practice and teachings come at more the heart side, and mindfulness practices come more at the mind side. Mm. But they blend together at the end. But they're like two Different ways of approaching practice. Mm-hmm. And those two particular books, Joseph Goldstein's Inside Meditation and Sharon Salzberg's Loving Kindness, which are two of the original books that I really resonated with me when I started. The interesting thing, I'm, I'm, I'm having to talk about this actually, and I think it's actually quite important, is there is actually a very Western Buddhist form hasn't risen and is continually changing and arising now. Buddhism, the teachings of the Buddha, 2,500 years old, have been transmitted into different cultures. It went into Tibet and connected with the bond tradition of Tibet and all this elaborate ritual, And but it's still Buddhism, until still basic teaching. It went to Japan, and there was the whole samurai tradition, so it became this sort of fierce warrior-like practice, right? Now it's come to the West. And it's like this whole other form of Buddhism is arising that I'm part of. I heard someone ask Joseph Goldstein this. And he said, here's the, what's happening in the West is different. Two things have happened. One is the Buddhist teachings have been blended in some sense with Western psychological understanding. And, and actually, if you go and look around in in, in the West and at people who teach this practice, about half of them are therapists. Uh, yeah interestingly enough and the other thing is it's become much more feminine the patriarchal energy that comes from thailand and burma which are very patriarchal rigid societies in some ways particularly within the buddhist tradition Mm -hmm. has been softened intentionally by people like joseph where whenever i went on retreat there'll be a group of teachers half the teachers are always women that's the way it is It's it's understood that it has to be that way. Mm. So you see this sort of more Western, softer in some senses form of Buddhist practice and teaching going on in the West.
0: That's so interesting. And one quality that is obviously critical, but also needed, is that a practice that has that kind of history, that kind of legacy, those kinds of roots actually evolves oh, yeah. and with the clear understanding that human consciousness is not standing still either
1: yeah having said all that mm-hmm. i have to add one more thing i don't think buddhist practice is for everybody
0: mm-hmm. yeah
1: at all it's and part of it is it's a pretty introverted practice go and sit still with a group of 90 people and not talk to them for a month doesn't it attract a lot of extroverts?
0: I was thinking about <laughs> southern evangelical churches where really it's ecstatic. It's yeah. It's the community rising up, shouting. It's not that.
1: <laughs> and here's another thing, and this is probably quite important that I say this. The thing about these practices is the whole teachings of the Buddha is how we have to gradually give up the sense of a separate self and stay connected more with the universal energy, right? Mm-hmm. It's not self, that is everything. To be able to do that successfully, you have to have a pretty solid sense of self to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I've had people come on retreat who shouldn't have been there, who, who left because they were not ready. Mm-hmm. They couldn't take the fact that when they were still and quiet and they weren't interacting and all the distractions that they had, the contents of your mind, that's all you got. For some people, that's not a good place to be. Yeah, I hear you. At all. I... But I think... In, that, in the, the formal practice world, there's a subset of people who w- would find it useful and want to do it. Yeah. But, but it's just one form of practice, and there's lots of other yeah. places you can go. But I think in the broader sense of, oh, we need more joy and more loving kindness and more compassion in the world without, without exception.
0: Yeah, we all need a version yeah. of that at the most basic level. Barry, I have to tell you, I've been looking forward to this. I am so um, appreciative of your sharing your time and your insights. Thank you. (laughs) I really do. And to you listeners, I'm truly thankful to those of you who've taken a few moments out of your busy lives to share these stories and conversations. And of course, if you really dig it and Want more, please follow or subscribe for free in your preferred podcast listening app. And if you are totally obsessed with what we're up to, you can explore our entire archive based on your specific interests like youth arts, cultural organizing, prison arts, changemaking media, and nine other categories in our Change the Story collection, which you can find in our show notes and at www.com artandcommunity.com under the podcast drop-down. Also, the poem Wild Geese was written and read by Mary Oliver and published in New and Selected Poems, Volume 1. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape spring forth from the head, heart, and hands of the maestro Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org and our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of OOF 235.